Alright, go ahead and open up in your conscience book to, I believe it's chapter 6. It's the one about culture. Yep. And let's see here. So I thought it was a fascinating story that starts out with the beginning of the chapter. This idea that walking through somebody's yard and picking the fruit off their tree, no big deal. That's just what everybody does and it's not considered stealing. It's accepted in their culture. Um, how did you respond to that story? Did it bother you a little bit? Go ahead. I could see three men Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure, sure. Um, there was a uh, this old book that my parents had, and it was called The Pineapple Story. You remember that one? Except the people, I think, recognized that they were actually stealing his stuff. They just wanted to see what he was going to do if they kept doing it. So a little bit different sort of uh, approach, but... Um, So in his case, he had to add the category of stinginess toward neighbors. So uh, we live in a very individualistic society. This is mine. Stay off my lawn, that kind of thing, you know. Um, I think that boundaries are good, but I think we have to recognize that there is certainly a degree to which those are, to some extent, culturally defined. Um, so. I did. The guy grew pineapples for three years and people kept stealing them from him and then finally they realized he wasn't going to like fly off the handle at them and so they quit doing it and he witnessed to them or something along those lines. I, it's been a long time since I read the story. So so he had to adjust his conscience about stinginess toward neighbors and concerning personal property rights. And so again in the book we have this uh, example of the overlapping triangles. Um, the question is, which is more important? Uh, what's more important to one person is not important at all to the other and vice versa. And so it's something where there has to be some negotiation. Um, page 120 or thereabouts where it says an ally goes silent. I thought that was a very interesting thought to consider that if you are trying to witness to somebody and illustrate to them sin, there has to be some measure of acceptance of what the category of sin is. Because if they don't recognize that it, it's a sin because their culture has said to them it's not and their conscience has been conditioned by their culture, it's going to be very difficult for you to persuade them you need to repent of this when they don't recognize that it's actually wrong. That doesn't mean that in time they shouldn't, I mean in time they should realize that the things that they thought were okay are wrong. It just means that the starting point for your evangelism can't be something that only you think is wrong and they think is okay. I thought that was a very helpful point to consider. So they talked about three dangers. What's the first danger there? I think page 120. Okay. So is it a sin to wear white socks with sandals? It may be a culturally unacceptable practice, but it is not a sin. 
So when we put, and that's a silly example, but when we put something like that in people's minds in the category of conscience and say this is wrong, we create unnecessary baggage for them and we confuse and sometimes they become more sensitive to all those extra rules we've added into their conscience instead of the things that God actually cares about most. Um, he's going to get into this a little bit later, but we should be able to have categories in our conscience for different categories for biblical commands, right and wrong, things that are accepted and unaccepted practices in our specific context, whether that be church or work or those sorts of things, rules that we practice in our house, and be able to distinguish between all of those things. And I think that's where we sometimes get into trouble. We sort of lump those all into one and we see them all as equally important. Just like when we were talking through the statement of faith. Someone's interpretation of um, the question of whether, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, who the giants were in Genesis 6 should not be the main thing that determines whether they're an accepted member in good standing of a church. That's like way down the line. But sometimes, because that might be an important issue to us, we elevate it to a higher importance than it should have. Um, connected with this, I appreciate uh, Christian colleges and uh, different churches that have done a great deal to try to encourage people to pursue missions and things like that. My fear in connection with this point is that it's very possible for us to say the church in France, the church in Cambodia, the church in um, Zambia needs to look exactly like the church in the United States or it's not biblical and it doesn't honor God. So, for example, um, uh, or even let's take a place like Mexico. Now, this may not be an, an exact parallel because um, there's probably more similarities than there are differences between our cultures in this specific point. But if we said, you are not a good Christian unless you wear a suit and a tie to church, Is it possible that we are creating a financial burden and or a, a very uncomfortable situation? Because, I mean, I remember going, I was in Mexico for three weeks when I was in my, in my teens down there visiting, and no air conditioning, suit and tie gets pretty sweaty. So, um, so my question, and, and some of it was their cultural practice. They had an idea to dress up for church, and that's fine. But to the extent to which it was not originally their cultural practice and simply something that we imported, I think we have to recognize that's in a different category than don't lie to your neighbor. And so I think we just have to be very clear on some of those kinds of issues. Um, all right. Number two, what's the second danger? Page 121, I believe. Okay. 
And that's where, even though conscience should be our ally in the preaching of the gospel and recognition of sin, it's going to fall silent because they don't have that in the category of sin in their minds, and we just have to recognize that that is uh, something where they'll have to grow into understanding, and we need to pick something else to, to use as our illustration of sinfulness. And potentially recognize that some things may be genuinely sin, and some things may be... Um, not sin, but we consider them to be a right or wrong issue, which is closely connected to number three. If we assume that we're right about everything, there may be things from their culture that we need to recognize either while we're in their culture or maybe just in general that we should be doing differently. Um, trying to think of... Uh, of a good example of this. How so? I remember hearing one of the presidents back in the gave the peace Oh, okay. Well, the examples they give here under number three, sharing food. We, I mean, that is pretty good with potluck, so I don't know that we entirely missed the boat on sharing food, but I'm just saying the concept of um, its church, all of a sudden we say, you know what? We have an opportunity to encourage these people we've been talking to at church. Let's invite them over. Maybe that means we all get to eat a little bit less. Maybe it means the meal is not going to be quite what we had envisioned. There's a sense in which, generally speaking, in our culture in the West, it's like, here's what I want or here's what I've planned. And when something interferes with those plans and those structures, we tend not to uh, recognize that there's an opportunity for ministry like a culture that valued the sharing of food and fellowship and those sorts of things might. What about the question of, of being on time? I'm not arguing that everyone should start showing up an hour late, just to be clear, because in our culture, things tend to work better when we all show up at the period upon time. But in um, other cultures, I had a friend whose wedding didn't start for like three hours after the time that it was supposed to start because all the family hadn't shown up and they weren't gonna start the wedding until all the family showed up we could be completely frustrated by that and probably rightfully so in this context but in their context it was not considered rude or at least such a common practice that it was just part of everyday life there's a variety of factors for that one factor might be the issue of transportation and traveling long distances another factor would be that people are prioritized over schedules, all those sorts of things. Now, let's say those two cultures combine. The sort of business culture of our day, this is the time the appointment is at, be there that time, maybe even 10, 15 minutes early. Their culture that says, if I show up three hours late, we're still gonna ha make this happen. There is, and, and then you've got people from both those cultures in the same church. How do you reconcile those differences? You have to say, we can't necessarily call it sin, but we have to come to an understanding of how this is perceived for us and how that is perceived for them, 
and say that maybe in consideration of these people, these people start showing up a little bit earlier, and in consideration of those people, these people are a little bit less harsh on them about not showing up exactly on time. You know, in our minds, you don't show up on time, it's an issue of laziness, poor planning, those sorts of things. But it's easy for us to become more focused on the event than on the individuals involved in it. And that's something that we should recognize. And in their case, it is easy to be focused on the people and to say that what I'm doing perhaps takes priority of what, over what they're doing, but there's perhaps a measure of selfishness involved in that. So we have to ask ourselves, and, 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 and this is something where I think our world today goes very much astray. We assume that everything that's in a culture is good and should be preserved. So it's bad for England to go and set up an empire in all these other places and impose their way of life on everyone. Or it's good for us to celebrate the aspects that are unique to that specific ethnic group. Here's the challenge. When the Mayan people invented the calendar, that was a good thing. When they marched people up on top of pyramids and ripped their hearts out of them, that was clearly a bad thing, right? There are elements of sin and of good in every culture. And that would be because culture is a product of people and people are a mixture of both good and evil in respect to some things we do reflect God, the conscience as it's given to us by God and some things reflect our sinful activities as we have pursued our own way. And so we have to recognize what things in culture are good, what things in culture are bad, and what things in culture are indifferent. So, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear biblically that adultery is wrong regardless of the culture. But when, even when it came to his example of stealing, the definition of what is considered stealing may be one of those matters where there has to be growth and understanding and consideration. Um, because uh, of just the way that something like that is perceived. Alright, uh, moving on. Uh, page 121, if you want the hearer's conscience to powerfully affirm your gospel witness, preach repentance from sins that are clearly sins in the Bible and the consciences of people in the target culture, and then cultivate those virtues of the target culture's conscience that are not traditionally a part of yours. What does the Bible say that both they and we recognize is a right and wrong issue? That doesn't mean that there aren't other right and wrong issues that we need to get to, but what at this moment can I appeal to to say, here's what God says, you're not doing it, you need God. And then secondly, what things are there that I am willing to, like Paul, become all things to all men, I am willing to conform to what they are expecting in order to have more of an opportunity to witness to them. Again, not doing things that are wrong, but recognizing that if it really bothers them if I wear shorts, I can wear long pants even if it means I'm uncomfortable. If it really bothers them that, if it really bothers a Hindu neighbor that I eat a hamburger, I mean, Paul specifically said, if I never eat meat again, that's not the most important issue. Now, does that mean that you can't, that you should never eat meat when they're not around? I mean, I don't think it's saying like your conscience has to be controlled by their misunderstanding, 
But certainly, if you're going to invite your Hindu neighbor over and he has a problem with hamburgers, don't serve him a, me a, me a meal full of meat. That just doesn't help the, the proclamation of the gospel. So, um, page 123, I thought this was an interesting statement. Uh, there was a fellow named Bob Priest, and he was citing some of his observations. I thought some of these were less helpful because they're merely his observations about life. They're not sourced in biblical truth, but they're at least helpful from the perspective of being thought-provoking. So, uh, page 123, he shares the critical insight that in an intercultural situation, each interactant, each person involved, will tend to condemn the other morally for behavior about which the other has no conscience. North American going to live with the Agaruna may be highly incensed at the, ca at the occasional beating of an errant wife, at arranged marriages, at polygyny, or the marriages of 13-year-old girls to 45-year-old men. For traditional Agarana, each of these is per perfectly wholesome and appropriate. On the other hand, the Agarana are angered when North American anthropologists or missionaries fail to share the food they are eating with visitors. Food is above all things that which must be shared. And when such foreigners are invited for a meal, they fail to exercise careful self-restraint in eating meat. Priest is not suggesting wife-beating and polygyny are disputable matters. He highlights them in order to show that missionaries and locals are often oblivious to behavior that doesn't violate their own conscience. My tension with that is if those things are clearly sin, at some point there has to be a conversation and a recognition that these things are not in the same category. Should we share our food in order to not unnecessarily offend the people we're trying to reach? Sure. Does that then mean we have to accept all aspects of their culture? I think we have to be clear that we're not saying that those things are okay. Um, we'll skip the next section, but uh, essentially, behavior and dress that are appropriately modest in one cultural context may be deemed shockingly immodest in another context. Christian modesty in the U.S. will look quite different from Christian modesty in Iran. What do you guys think about that statement? And to be fair, like you're pointing out, there is a very inconsistent standard between what's expected of men and what's expected of women. And um, a lot of that is a product. And, and here's where the culture, religious thing ties in. Why is it that women are treated so badly in Islam and, and men are seemingly have a very easy time of it? Because it was a religion invented by a guy for the, I mean, not to be unnecessarily uh, simplistic, but there was a lot of things connected with that religion that basically were to make it okay for him to do what he wanted with regard to various people that he had connections with. Um, so, he wanted to marry his cousin. He made sure that there weren't any regulations in the religion that excluded that, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, 
Right. I mean, there's a lot, there's a whole lot of things connected with that. I think we have to recognize that there are aspects of a culture that are clearly wrong because they're clearly based on a skewed understanding of how life should be. But I do think we have to recognize that there is perhaps wisdom or at least an element of consideration in if a woman is going to go to that culture, the best way to reach those people is probably not to immediately violate all of the things that they hold as important. Um, whether someone is called to have that sort of uh, witness is another question because that's a challenging uh, environment in which to, to minister. Uh, for us to train, um, let's see here. If missionaries fail to treat cross-cultural conscience issues with care, they may bypass the native conscience and natives may convert not to Christianity but to a different culture. This is an extremely important point. We should not assume that someone is a Christian just because they start singing the same hymns as us, wearing the same clothes as us, and not swearing. That is not Christianity. There are perhaps um, elements of Christianity that flow into some of those behaviors, but simply because somebody starts looking like me does not mean that they're Christian. We have to watch out for this because there are so many times when someone will say seemingly pious things in the context of our culture. We need to have faith. We need to, um, you know, I believe in God. And, and we just sort of like, oh, you're a Christian. Without figuring out what that person actually means by those things, without pausing and saying, well, wait a minute. You say you're a Christian, but God says Christians ought not to do this, and your life is like completely in opposition to this thing that God is saying. So there's a disconnect there. Ignorance, willful disobedience, lack of growth, whatever it is, there's some kind of disconnect there. So we don't need to automatically assume that everyone around us is a Christian just because they start using Christian words and phrases. We have to watch out for that in our own families as well because it would be possible for us to, for example, raise children who can say the right things and don't love God. Now, this comes up in the context of there were, there were two different Christian colleges that I was looking at when I was... Um, getting ready to go to college. One of them emphasized that it's important for heart transformation, and the other one was considered more strict with regard to external behaviors. Um, I think over time there was adjustment on the part of both to recognize that both things are important, both what you do outside and the state of your heart. But sometimes we, sometimes we, we tend to swing to one extreme or the other. It only matters what you believe in your heart. It doesn't matter what you do on the outside. Or it only matters what you do on the outside. And it doesn't matter what you believe in your heart. We have to have both. But it's very easy for us to fall into one ditch or the other. And so, again, I think we just have to be very careful and recognize just because someone says the right things, doesn't break the rules, whatever, it doesn't mean that everything's okay. It's kind of along the same lines. And this is going a little bit far field. We'll get back to it in just a moment. Sometimes we're happy if people show up to church regularly. You can go to church for a long time and have a lot wrong in your heart and life. 
and maybe you're just showing up because it's expected of you, because your parents make you, because you feel some sense of obligation for other reasons, doesn't mean that everything's okay. And so we should not just take at face value the fact that someone is present and assume that that means everything's right between them and God. So how do we take the next step then? We talk to each other. Not just how is your week, generally speaking, but how did God encourage you this week? What trial did you go through this week that I can pray for you about that maybe you're still going through? If we, if we have those sorts of conversations with each other, we can get past the superficial sorts of things and the assumptions that everything's okay just because somebody's here with a smile on their face and say, how is your life actually going? So again, I think uh, perceptions of things can be different from the reality. So the two things that Priest said on page 126, uh, the missionary should seek to live an exemplary life in terms of the virtues and norms stressed by the people he or she is attempting to reach. And then secondly, stress sin, guilt, and repentance principally with reference to native conscience, particularly what is in agreement with Scripture. The first one I would say with this caveat, if they value something the Bible says is wrong, we cannot live an exemplary life with regard to that point. So let's say their culture values the art of manipulation. You can't be an, ex an exemplary person in regard to that specific point. Are there other things that you can perhaps say, I'm going to do my best to meet their expectations? Yes. But again, when there's a conflict between what the Bible says and what their culture says, we have to recognize there are elements of culture that can be sinful. All right, um, go to page 127. Like Paul's conscience, the conscience of every believer is a mixture of rules that are informed by God's will and rules that are merely cultural or personal preference. So, so just to illustrate this, you've got it there in front of you. I'll just put simply Bible and then culture, and then we could probably even put this at a different level, you know, just put preference. The lines are fuzzy between these, right? Because what I prefer is often a product of my culture. And some things that are cultural are a product of the Bible, and some of them are a product of personal preference, right? And so we just have to be wise about recognizing all those sorts of things. So uh, he goes through the example of Paul again. He says, Paul's goal was to work through the things that were, um, which things are essential to following God, which things are a function of the fact that I was raised a Jew, which things are a function of what works well in the environment in which I live. I thought this was an interesting statement. What did Paul do with all the rules he removed? Was it party time for Paul? Ham stuffed with crab wrapped in bacon every day. I mean, that actually sounds pretty good, but was that Paul's approach? No. There were a lot of times when he fasted, when he didn't participate in those things that he had a right to do, because it would have interfered with his ministry. It was never about food. 
It was about Jesus and the gospel. It says then, He was able to do these things because he had done the hard work of calibrating his conscience to meet God's standards, not the standards of people. We must seriously and prayerfully do the difficult work of streamlining our conscience under the direction of the Holy Spirit and His Word. This will mean creating new categories in our minds, new files into which we will move the matters we previously placed in the category of right and wrong. One might be family rules, another wisdom issues, another hygiene, another good manners. I, J.D., have at least three different good manners ones, one for America, one among Khmer in Cambodia, and one among tribal minorities in uh, Cambodia. Going back to something Lewis said a moment ago, nothing can be more important or seen as a higher priority than Jesus in the Gospel. You may have strong feelings about your political party. You may have strong feelings about what kind of food is the healthiest to eat. You may have strong feelings about what clothes people should wear, what music they should listen to, what places they should go, all of those sorts of things. And I'm not saying we should never consider any of those things, but if people look at your life and they say, this person is more interested in blank than in the gospel, we are not representing Jesus well. We cannot represent the people around us that Christianity is merely a set of do's and don'ts, that if they just lived up to this particular set of expectations, everything would be right between them and God. Jesus is not first and foremost interested in making us healthy or wealthy or have good marriages or have uh, good grades in school or any of those sorts of things. He's first and foremost interested in what it says in Ephesians 2.10 that for his people they would walk in good works. That flows out in, and impacts other areas of our life. But sometimes we want to start over here with all of these other things and we need to start with what is central and then see the impact that that has outward from, from what is central to what it is we're focusing on. So then on page 131, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, 23 presents two general categories of people. People like Paul who become all things to all men for the sake of the gospel and people for whom those like Paul flex. Here's a question. How do I go from being the ethnocentric person for whom Paul must flex to being the person like Paul who is doing this amazing flexing from flowing, while flowing from culture to culture? It's not easy. It requires years of tending the garden of your conscience or of calibrating and recalibrating. That's what Christian liberty really is, the freedom to discipline yourself, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. And this is where so many people go wrong with the subject of Christian liberty. They view Christian liberty as, I'm saved, I don't have to follow these rules, I'll do whatever I want. It's not, I get to do all the stuff I've always wanted to do, but my strict upbringing wouldn't let me. Then you Facebook about it so everyone knows you're hip and cool. That's not Christian liberty, that's immaturity. And that's easy for us to do. Christian liberty is not about you and your freedom to do what you want to do. It's about the freedom to discipline yourself, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of weaker believers. The freedom to eat dog when natives in the village serve to you. The freedom to choose never again to eat southern barbecue and double bacon cheeseburgers because you're called to serve Christ in the Muslim areas of Detroit. 
Now, this is a tension in my mind. Does that mean that you could never, ever do it again? Um, I do think that there's an element of wisdom. I don't think that you have to hide the fact that you think that it's okay. I think that uh, if you were down visiting your family in Georgia, I don't think there would be anything wrong with you doing it. I do think it would probably be foolish of you if you're ministering in that context to say, oh, let me uh, post a bunch of pictures of us at a, at a party at a barbecue restaurant here, knowing that it's going to impact your ministry over there. Not that you're trying to hide something, but just because there's going to be misunderstanding. Um, Christian liberty is the freedom that comes to a single lady missionary who is brought up to have personal scruples against wearing pants, but who disciplines herself to wear the indigenous clothing of a tribe in Central Asia, including pants, because in that culture only loose women wear dresses and show their ankles and calves. Again, surprising twist on, on these expectations. Christian liberty is the freedom that allows a private person to open up her home in a society where people just walk in without knocking, a society that doesn't even have a word for privacy. Christian liberty is about a clean freak who doesn't get out his hand sanitizer every time he has contact with people. And uh, we might have discussion about this one. Is the freedom to sing and dance to tribal hymns the way the tribal people sing and dance to them, even though by upbringing and personality, you would be never be comfortable showing that kind of emotion in worship? The freedom for someone who hates bugs to live where bugs nightly invade homes. A Corinthian Christian getting invited to his unsaved neighbor's house for a feast and being served meat he doesn't want to eat because of former convictions, but eating it anyway because that man's eternal soul matters more than a scruple about not eating meat. It's about another Corinthian Christian at the same party who has no scruples against eating meat, and just as he gets ready to eat the steak, someone sitting next to him and says, don't eat it, it's been sacrificed. For the sake of that man and his weak conscience, he doesn't do it. So this is a challenging thing to work through. It's not as simple and as clear-cut as we would like to make it. Um, I think page 134, a message to future missionaries. You can't live this kind of life if your conscience is cluttered with all manner of restrictions that God hasn't instituted. If you've taken 50 little issues and made them into big issues in your conscience, there are 50 fewer areas in which you can flex to minister to other people. If what you eat and drink is in the category of black and white, you can't flex on it. If pristine hygiene is in your conscience as a matter of right and wrong, you can't flex on that. If your conscience tells you it's wrong to eat animals, there goes your ministry to 90% of the people in the world. If you think privacy is next to godliness, you won't last long in most countries. Um, then he talks about this idea of franchise missions. I do think that to be fair, we should consider the other extreme. If we do things that God says we shouldn't do, we also destroy our ministry as well. So I think we have to acknowledge that alongside the there's legalism, there's lawlessness, we can fall into both issues. The Bible gives clear evidence God intends the little clashes of culture in your church to get you ready for the really difficult clashes of culture in missions and evangelism. Talks about that from Romans 15. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that we need to highlight. Yeah. So bottom line, there's a lot of different issues that are raised in this chapter that we should consider, that we should work through, and recognize that these things are in difficulty of uh, increasing difficulty. 
It's one thing for me to say, I'm working on what my conscience says. It's another for me to step into a church context and say, here's my conscience and everyone else's conscience. It's another thing to say, I'm going from just me to me and other Christians in the same general area to me and other Christians in a completely different part of the world to now I'm moving between all three of these areas. It takes wisdom, it takes grace, it takes diligence to constantly be evaluating and saying what is in the Bible, what's in my culture, what's my personal preference, recognizing which things are in which category and recognizing that as long as these things are in my conscience as a matter of right and wrong, I have to follow them. The goal would be that they would be in my mind as a recognition of the environment in which I live, but that like Paul, I would recognize that these things are not biblical mandates, and so there is room to flex and to adjust on them. And that's where it gets tricky because they would be in our conscience as far as something that we're aware of, but not in our conscience as something that's a matter of right and wrong. And again, that's a, that's a big challenge. So, yes? Sure. Right, yeah. Stepping over into evangelism. So, uh, I think it's definitely good for us to consider all of those sorts of things. All right. Any other quick thoughts? All right. Go ahead and wrap it up there. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we consider...